What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. There's a new book about movements of the 60s and their fights for equality for people of color, women, and working people. The authors are a brother and sister team, David and Margaret Talbot. Their book is called By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Second American Revolution. David Talbot is the founder of the pioneering online magazine Salon. He's written many books, including the bestseller, The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and The Rise of America's Secret Government. He's also been a senior editor of Mother Jones and a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. We reached him today in San Francisco. Hi, David. Hey, John. And Margaret Talbot has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2004, where she's written about lots of things. The current issue features her fascinating report on the campaign inside the Catholic Church to permit women to become priests. Before The New Yorker, Margaret was an editor at the late lamented Lingua Franca, where she edited me. She's won many awards for her writing. She's the author of the book, The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. We reach Margaret today at home in Washington, DC. Hi, Margaret. Hi, John. Well, you guys focus on leaders of different 60s movements, some well-known like Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda and John and Yoko and Bobby Seale, who of course was portrayed recently in the award-winning Aaron Sorkin movie on the trial of the Chicago 7. I'd like to focus here on some of the less well-known. You have a fascinating chapter on the Jane Collective, founded in Chicago by Heather Booth, who remains one of today's most important progressive leaders. You say the work of the Jane Collective was one of the most remarkable feats of grassroots activism and sheer chutzpah in the history of American feminism. Please explain the Jane Collective. Yeah, well, the Jane Collective was uh, just a really daring, audacious um, effort all around. I mean, it was these women who, in the era before abortion was legal, before Roe v. Wade, starting in the mid-60s, began providing abortions, first as a kind of underground referral service to to, to doctors who would uh, do these abortions, um, you know, secretly. 
and uh, later actually training themselves, the women training themselves to perform the abortions. And um, these are not for the most part women who had medical backgrounds at that time, but they worked with these, these uh, male uh, providers who they learned from. They ended up providing uh, 10, about 10,000 abortions. They had an incredible safety record and they did a lot of feminist consciousness raising with the women who they, who they saw. It had a very kind of mutual aid aspect to it. Some of the women who went through it also came back and had abortions themselves. And it was part of the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, which was an amazing, vibrant and vital organization that had a lot of um, a lot going on, had a rock and roll band and a graphics collective <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. But um, but yeah, they really they, they were really an example of sort of stepping up and kind of doing for themselves, but also doing it with a with a uh, with a feminist ideology. And just to go back, um, it was it was founded, you mentioned Heather Booth, it was actually founded by Heather Booth, um, kind of out of her dorm room at the University of Chicago, when a friend's sister needed an abortion, and she um, uh, had come back from the uh, Freedom Summer in 1964, was uh, a little bit familiar with um, breaking the law uh, in a righteous cause and was willing to do this and she got it going. Your chapter opens with the story of the bust, Chicago police detectives knocking on the door and eventually arresting seven of the people called the Janes. Tell us a little about the bust, the trial, the aftermath. You know, the Chicago police had seemingly kind of looked the other way a little bit on their operations because some actually uh, wives and daughters of, of of cops actually did come to them for their services at times. And so there was a little bit of looking the other way. But eventually they did run afoul of the law. They were arrested. Um, they got a very uh, a tough Chicago female criminal defense lawyer to represent them. And um, he dragged the case out long enough that it actually did not... Uh, come to trial before Roe v. Wade. And so when Roe v. Wade in 1973, January 1973, um, became the law of the land, they actually, uh, the case, the, the charges were dropped. And I loved your chapter on the American Indian movement at Wounded Knee, which focuses on Dennis Banks, Madonna Thunderhawk, and Russell Means. Let's talk about what happened on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1973. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out also to Leonard Crowdog, who died recently, uh, the spiritual leader of the Wounded Knee Occupation. This was an amazing John resistance to federal sovereignty, to federal law. It was an uprising of the American Indian Movement in 1973 against the Nixon administration, but protesting the long, long history of broken treaties and deception and betrayal and also the corruption of that particular uh, reservation leadership under a man named Dick Wilson, who'd been elected under very sketchy circumstances and ran a really brutal administration with a squad of kind of paramilitary thugs who proudly called themselves goons and went around shooting up the homes and roughing up people who opposed his administration. So AIM responded to the tribes people, uh, Lakota tribes people of that reservation. They were kind of shamed into taking action, the male leaders of AIM, Dennis Banks and Russell Means, by the women who said, look, if you don't take a stand here, we will. And so they occupied the sacred site where almost 100 years before there had been a massacre of over 200, closer to 300 Lakota tribes people by the regiment that had once been under the command of uh, General Custer. They were drunkenly and wantonly massacred by this regiment who later got medals for their own heroism, kind of a, a, still a stain on American history. 
And so they occupied the sacred site. They said they could at night still hear the, the moans and the cries mm -hmm. of the dead. Mm -hmm. And so they were inspired to take a stand for 71 days. They withheld the full might of the uh, of federal forces, vigilantes, over a half million rounds of ammunition fired at them. These are men, women, and children occupying the site. Uh, amazingly, only two Native Americans were killed during this onslaught. But... Crow Dog, Chief Crow Dog just said, uh, in, I was reading his obituary in the New York Times, and he said this was the greatest deed undertaken by the Native people in the 20th century, because it showed that the amazing solidarity, I think, of the tribes people. And frankly, it, one of the things Margaret and I uh, go into a, a lot in this book is the kind of uh, bonds that were developed between movement groups. So before we started Zooming here, I know, John, you and I were talking about Bill Zimmerman, amazing guy, a white guy, uh, grew up in Chicago, Jew, working class Jewish family, but he was kind of like the Zelig of the left. He was everywhere. And among his many achievements was flying a small squadron of planes and risking his own life over Wounded Knee when the people that were starving, they'd been so cut off from the outside world by the military, uh, militarized police forces that they desperately needed food. And he led a small squadron of planes over Wounded Knee and dropped food to uh, the people below, risking, you know, uh, death. And at one point, uh, one of the uh, the bags of food shears off part of his plane, uh, his tail, <laughs> and he barely was able to land it plane safely. Uh, anyway, these were the kind of, I think, uh, heroic acts that we found so inspiring in the book. As Margaret uh, said, Heather Booth and, and the risks that she and others took in Chicago were similar. We need to be inspired by this and also learn from the mistakes that were made. And, and, and they, of course, made many mistakes as well, these people. Yeah, one of the keys to your approach is not just the stories of heroism and the high points, but as you say, to talk about the mistakes, the problems, and frankly, the disasters around some 60s movement leaders. I appreciate especially uh, your chapter on the Panthers and what happened to Huey Newton. Of course, a lot of us who were around at the time took part in a lot of free Huey rally rallies. Huey did not end up one of our heroes. Let's talk about what happened to Huey Newton and, and what was the white witch? <laughs> Huey descended, sadly, into criminality and gangsterism. <clears throat> There's no putting uh, a, spin, a better spin on it than that. He was one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, very charismatic guy. I tell the story, as told to me by Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the party, when they first confront a cop on the streets of Oakland where routinely racist cops, violent cops, would shake down, harass, beat, and arrest uh, Black citizens for no other reason than uh, they could do it. And, uh, you know, that kind of, of violence finally was resisted by the Black Panther Party. Uh, Bobby told the story to me, and I retell it in the, our book in a very dramatic way, where they first legally confront this cop. Uh, no one was killed, no gunfire, but they confront him with guns. And that was the amazing heroism, I think, and the daring courage of the Black Panther Party to do that. Now, Bobby wanted to pivot after that. He thought that would capture the imagination, the attention of the Black community in Oakland and nationally, and it did. And then he wanted to pivot to electoral politics and become basically a Democratic Party machine in Oakland. He himself ran for mayor in 1973 of Oakland. Uh, 
But Huey took a different path, sadly. Partly it was Huey's personality. He was always a hothead. Bobby talks about that with me. But he also, I think, life in prison and isolation really did a number on him. And I don't think to this day we understand enough about how this, these long, hard stretches of prison did psychologically affect many leaders of the movement. And Huey Newton was one of them. You know, Peter Coyote, who was a friend of Huey Newton, told me that he was a very different man, Huey, when he came out of prison. He did get into the White Witch cocaine. He got into drinking, uh, heavily drinking cognac. He began to brutalize other people, including Bobby Seale at one point. Uh, he ran a gang, basically, a, a drug gang in Oakland before he himself was shot on the streets of West Oakland by a younger drug dealer. A very sad kind of a decomposition of a guy who had once been very heroic and charismatic. And another one of the problematic figures who you face, quite frankly, in your book is Cesar Chavez. What was the martyr complex? That chapter was written by our, uh, my husband and our collaborator, Arthur Allen, who's not with us. I mean, he's with us in the world, but he's not with us on the phone call today. But um, anyway, we, we really wanted to focus on these turning points where, where uh, various leaders of the movements um, decided to do something pretty bold and pretty imaginative strategically and, and personally and so on. And, you know, of course, Chavez led these incredible hunger strikes. I mean, where he went on hunger strikes himself, where he really brought himself near near death. And they were they were quite successful at drawing attention to the plight of the farm workers and to the boycott, which was in turn quite successful at bringing people uh, across the country into the farm worker struggle and into support of the farm worker struggle. But I think partly because of um, those sacrifices he made and the kind of sacrifice he made of his own person, of his own body, uh, that contributed to, I think, a feeling of, of martyrdom and isolation and um, kind of extraordinary um, separation at times from some of the people that he had come up with uh, and worked with and alienation um, from some of the from some of his um, fellow activists. So uh, I think in the end, he also um, made some unfortunate decisions, surrounded himself by um, people affiliated with, you know, some cult groups, you know, to do kind of uh, camaraderie building exercises that were that were kind of punitive and strange. And all of these people, and we talk about this in the book too, all of them underwent quite a bit of, you know, surveillance, harassment, persecution by, you know, the FBI, by, by COINTELPRO, Hoover's program. And so that contributed also, of course, to many of them legitimate feelings of paranoia or, or, of, or of fear or caution, um, but also those, the kind of feelings that can get out of hand and, and, and isolate people. Well, I do want to um, uh, talk a little bit about the personal side of, of all of this. David, I know you were uh, like a high school activist in the 60s. So this is a book in which you are writing about your own life. How did you deal with that? Well, in some ways, I, I was coming full circle. It's true, John. I wanted to make sense of this history, frankly, for my own uh, sake and the, those who are part of my generation, but even more so for the younger people. Uh, I have children, two sons in their 20s. Uh, Margaret has two children. 
Uh, and they're obviously uh, caught up in their own times and the turbulence of today. And we think it's important for these people, for the younger generation to learn from our mistakes and also to be inspired by the achievements of the 60s and not get so grim and, and, and down that they see you, you can't make history because you, we did make history. I was a foot soldier in those movements. I knew I went to like you, free Huey rallies. Uh, I went inside prisons inside Soledad as a Santa Cruz student uh, to teach prisoners and to raise their consciousness. And they raised ours, of course. Uh, I was involved in anti-war activities, got beat up, got arrested. And these to me were essential sort of paths that, that my generation, the best of our generation took. There was a great deal of heroism, of sacrifice uh, in my generation. I'm proud of that. And mistakes, yes, were made. Uh, and so this book, in some ways, was the culmination of everything that I've uh, been part of politically and written about politically over the last 40 years. And Margaret, you were just a little kid in the 60s. It was your older uh, brothers and, and, and sister, I guess, who were part of things. How did that affect your writing of this book? Yeah, well, I was born in 1961. So yeah, I'm 10 years younger than David. And um, I kind of grew up just, you know, going to visit them in their Santa Cruz, uh, you know, left wing socialist feminist lesbian collective and going to dances and, and demonstrations and um, as, as a kid, you know, and and um, I, I loved it, and um, I was treated with so much warmth and and uh, and and love by all those lefty hippies, and um, kind of raised by the by the village of them, in addition to our our own family. And I have always felt that I so benefited from coming of age then, you know, after second wave feminism, and you know, now um, as the mother of a gay daughter, I feel um, so grateful for all of the social and cultural changes that the gay rights movement, uh, LGBTQ uh, movement has made. So, um, but I did also feel as a kid, just a lot of longing to, a lot of regret that I wasn't older and couldn't actually be, you know, out there in the thick of it. So this gave me a great chance to kind of re-experience it, uh, you know, vicariously as a, as a popular historian and it was, and, and, and somebody who had, yeah, lived in that um, penumbra of it. So. Hey, John, I should add one quick thing. Uh, I originally was doing this book on my own, and I uh, suffered a stroke in uh, the fall of 2017. And I knew I needed someone to help me uh, write it to complete uh, the book. And I couldn't think of a better person than my kid sister, Margaret, <laughs> to do this. And so I, uh, I asked her, uh, if she would step in and Art, her Art, Arthur Allen, her husband, to help me out. And we became a team, a family team. And in some ways, it was like the collective enterprises <laughs> of our past. And I it, had a great time working with Margaret and with Art. It was just as smooth and a wonderful uh, collaboration as you could have asked for. So uh, I want to give Margaret a shout out. She didn't need to do it, but she did. She jumped in and she did a terrific job. Your feelings mutual, brah. It was great. <laughs> I know it was really, a, it was a really joyful experience. And uh, I, I was, I was thrilled we got to do it. Well, David, it's great to see you uh, healthy today. The book is By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution. David Talbot and Margaret Talbot, thank you for talking with us today. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah. 
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.